Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone here. It's a crisp fall day here in October. We're going to continue in our walk through the prophet Isaiah. And before we do that, let's pray. Father, we are very thankful for opportunities that we have to extend the grace that we have received. And we join uh, with Pastor John in praying for the ministry of, of the Open Door. We also pray, Father, in advance for the uh, Fall Festival for uh, n- next Saturday, that that would be a way for us to extend the grace that we have received to our community, that there would be an opportunity, Father, in that in that moment and during that day to uh, show the love of Christ, to, to share the good news of the gospel of of Christ and salvation by grace through faith in Him. Father, we also are thankful for Your Word, which, because it is Your Word, it is by its very character eternal, enduring, and therefore relevant. That there is never a day, there will never be a day, nor will there be a time when Your Word is irrelevant. Never be a time when your word will not have meaning or bearing, not only on the events in our lives, but the events in our culture and in the world around us. Your word, Father, is a message of hope, a message of truth. It is the revelation of your character, of your grace, your mercy, your justice, your righteousness, your holiness. And we, by your grace, Lord God, are invited into this word because we also know that aside from words printed on a page, your word is a person whom we encounter in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. As we have confessed our sins, as we have received the forgiveness for sins, as we are reminded of his finished work as the basis for our salvation, We pray, Lord, that that hope, that assurance, would be indeed the foundation not only on which we build our lives, but we build our faith, we build our hope, we build our outlook for the future. We live in times, Lord God, that for many of us are just strange and uh, unique. We live in times, Lord God, when it seems truth is, um, if not in short supply, out and out denied out and out ignored. And it's extremely difficult, Father, uh, we acknowledge to stand courageously for the truth uh, in a culture that is averse to knowing and worshiping you. You have placed us strategically in our jobs, in our communities, in our schools to be salt and light. So we'd help, we ask for your help in being courageous and being compassionate being bold, being forthright, being uncompromising, but in, in the uncompromising way that Jesus is, as we read in the Gospels. We thank you, Lord God, that we can do this because you have called us to it, and therefore you empower us to do so. We pray for your help now <clears throat> in understanding your word, this most interesting of, uh, of books, the prophet Zechariah, this most challenging of books, this most, at times, confounding of books, but it is in your word, and therefore it is meant to be studied, it is meant to be learned, it is meant to be applied, it is meant 
to direct our, our hearts toward Christ in right living in this world. So open our heart now, Lord God, our mind as well, to, to hear, to understand, and to apply this glorious truth that is in your prophet Zechariah. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen. <clears throat> now before um, reading uh, the text for this morning, which is going to be all of chapter 2, it's 13 verses, uh, just take a moment to review where we are so far. You know, we're only in the second chapter. A lot has happened in Zechariah. Uh, the, the book begins with the Lord giving an exhortation a slash invitation, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. And that given his desire to return to Israel, to have them return to him, the Lord warns Zechariah and his countrymen not to be like their ancestors who refused to return to him. And three months later, three months from the start of the book, Zechariah then sees a series of eight visions, all eight taking place in the same night, all eight connected to one another by God's promise to eliminate evil forever and establish his reign and rule through a, a people uh, who bear his name. And then we get into the first vision where uh, that ends, you know, Zechariah sees a man riding on a red horse, other horses around and things like that. That first vision ends with God's promise to comfort Zion and to again choose Jerusalem. The second vision builds on that, showing how God will fulfill this promise to comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem by sending the four craftsmen to punish the enemies of Israel. Now, in going through that second vision last week, I, I mentioned a quote by the Puritan Matthew uh, Brooks in which Brooks said, we must measure our afflictions by their outcome, not how they hurt. And I went briefly through some five outcomes that are promised to Israel, promised to us really, if we return to the Lord. And those first four outcomes are in the end of the first vision. God's promise to show mercy. God's promise to dwell among his people. God's promise to rebuild uh, Jerusalem. God's promise to prosper his people. And the fifth outcome is given in that second vision in which God promises to further protect Jerusalem and his people by punishing their enemies, and that he has sent to punish them. And so in this third vision, when we come to this third vision, God is going to show even further how his promise to comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem is going to be worked out in the life of the city and of his people. And so that becomes then the, the context from which we understand uh, the, the text in Zechariah 2, which is as follows. The prophet says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a village without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. <clears throat> and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And so there is this vision that comes to us really in three scenes. We're going to unpack those scenes over the next uh, several weeks. Uh, we look at this text, and I read this text, I studied it, and something that came to mind is, there's a very famous poem by uh, Robert Frost. I remember learning it as a, as a student in high school. Uh, the poem is called Mending Wall. It's one of his more well-known poems. Uh, Mending Wall recounts a conversation that Frost has with his neighbor as they repair a stone wall that uh, separates their two properties. That over the winter, hunters climbing over this wall have made gaps in the wall requiring Frost and his neighbor to engage in the annual task of repairing the wall. Near the middle of the poem, Frost describes a section, and I quote, where it is we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. A few lines later, Frost writes, something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I see him there bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand, like an old stone savage armed. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. There's something there is that doesn't love a wall. However, <clears throat> not all walls are unloved, nor are all walls fundamentally wrong or unnecessary. For instance, in Zechariah's day, remember this is written around 519, 520 uh, BC, 500 years before the birth of Christ, almost 25, 2600 years ago. So in Zechariah's day, walls represented protection. They protected a city from, and its inhabitants from attack, particularly by hostile nations. Remember that when King Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem in 586-587 BC, one of the first things he did in order to conquer the city was to destroy the walls around it. If you are a fan of the Lord of the Rings, did you bring to mind Helm's Deep? Right, the Battle of Helm's Deep, where they destroy the outer wall and the, the, uh, the army of darkness begins to march further and further into the city. That's exactly the image that takes place in Jerusalem. The outer walls are destroyed, then the inner wall falls, and finally the city is attacked. So when Zechariah arrives in Jerusalem some 70 years later, none of those walls exist. None of those walls surround the city. It's just a heap, a pile of stone and rubble. And that wall, the walls around Jerusalem, would not be built until around 445 B.C. by Nehemiah 
when he returns to the city some 70 years after Zechariah gets there. So the absence of a wall around Jerusalem um, <clears throat> provides the context then for Zechariah's third vision. No wall means no protection. It means no safety. It means no security for the city or for the inhabitants in it. And remember, too, at the heart of Jerusalem, in the center of the city, one of the most important, if not the most important structure in that city was the temple itself, which was destroyed when the Babylonians entered the city in 587. So the substance of Zechariah's third vision is God's promise to protect Jerusalem with something stronger, something more formidable, something more indestructible than a wall made of stone and rock and mud. The vision, as I said, unfolds in three scenes, which all flow out of that single theme that God is going to inspire hope by choosing to dwell in Jerusalem. We're going to see how it's important God's promise to make to the city, to return to it and to rebuild it, symbolizes the hope that he has for it, the future he has for it, as also for the people in it. The fact that he is not and will not leave his people defenseless anymore, but that he himself will provide the protection that they need by his own presence. And so the, the, the scenes that unfold in the vision, the, the first scene is in verses 1 to 5, that our hope is in the majestic power of God's presence. Scene 2, which is verses 6 through 9, we'll see how God, our hope is in the parental character of God's vengeance, that he does undertake to punish those who punish his people. And then the third scene is that our hope is in the irresistible attraction of God's grace, that eventually, in verses 10 to 13, we see God expanding the city to include even the enemies of Israel as among his people. Like I said, the vision unfolds in three scenes, and it's a complex vision. There's a lot going on in these 13 verses. So we're just going to break them apart and look at each scene. First scene this week, scene two next week, scene three uh, the week after, because we want to get a comprehensive view. We're going to just sort of settle here and live in chapter two for the next uh, couple of weeks. So as you're reading through Zechariah, which I hope you are, really just sort of plant yourself there and, and kind of just figure out with the help of the Spirit, like, what's going on here? We'll, we'll get an idea. So let's look at this first scene, where God is going to inspire hope by choosing to dwell among his people. Think about it for a moment, like you return to this city, the city that you have heard so much about, Zechariah and his generation, a city whose stories they have heard from their, their ancestors, their, their parents, their grandparents, this great city that flourished under Solomon, that was destroyed, it was annihilated, um, when you think about how when an enemy army attacks a capital city, the reason why it attacks the capital city is because it's the capital city, and then it lays waste to that capital city so that it will never be rebuilt. And so the identity of the nation that you've conquered is now lost forever because the city that gave it its identity, particularly in Jerusalem, the temple, is gone. And so the hope that God instills in Zechariah and in his people is that the city of Jerusalem is not beyond hope, not beyond repair, not beyond renewal, because he himself will now choose to dwell in it. We'll see how this unfolds. And as this, the vision starts off with Zechariah seeing a man with a measuring line in his hand. There's a lot going on here in terms of interconnectedness with other parts of the Bible. 
a similar vision takes place in Ezekiel 40, and another a similar vision takes place later in the book of Revelation. So there's a sense of continuity of what measuring means. Uh, and so he sees this surveyor, if you will, with a measuring line, measuring the width and the length of the city. And that's what he tells Zechariah when Zechariah asks him what he's doing. The next person who shows up on the screen is this angel who talked with Zechariah back in verse 1, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. And then this other being that he identifies as another angel. It's kind of like a Shakespearean play. you got to get the dramatic persona here to kind of get the t- context of what's happening. This another angel says to the angel that's talking to Zechariah to go to that surveyor. Go find him and say, run to that young man. Say, Jerusalem shall be inhabited in vi- as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So the angel who talked with Zechariah, as I said, we've seen him before. This another angel, the best identification we have of him is he's the same as the fellow riding the red horse. This is the angel of the Lord. This is a a pre-incarnate experience. Uh, or appearance, rather, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants this young man who's measuring, he wants Zechariah to know, he wants Zechariah's people to know that Jerusalem will be inhabited as a village without walls because of the large multitude of people and livestock in it, which is a, a way of saying it's going to be such a prosperously large city with people and commerce that it will not need a physical wall. Now, when you unpack the second vision here in Zechariah, there at least such as with the, the, the second vision, a couple of different ways of looking at it. One is to look at it from a positive standpoint. That measuring the width and the length of Jerusalem means the city is going to be rebuilt. You don't measure, right, when you, you buy an apartment or you buy a house or you rent an apartment, what's one of the first things you do? You measure Right? Do I have, is, it going to, is it going to accommodate my furniture? Do I have enough living space? You know, put curtains, things hung up. So the idea of measuring implies that the city is going to be rebuilt. Perhaps in Zechariah's lifetime. That if, and if Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, then the temple is going to be rebuilt. And if the temple is going to be rebuilt, then the physical representation of God's presence is now going to return to the city. And so what Zechariah is seeing here is the fulfillment of God's promise. I will comfort Zion. I will again choose Jerusalem. The city, though it's now laid waste by its enemies, will be rebuilt. The identity of the nation, the identity of my people, the the focus of their worship will now return to them, and God will again choose Jerusalem. Because it's obvious, too, God knows the size of Jerusalem. And the Lord himself is not has not have any need to measure the dimensions of the city. The measurement is really there for Zechariah's benefit and for the benefit of his audience to let them know these good things are going to happen. It's God's way of encouraging Zechariah. I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and David and Joshua. I know your circumstances. I know what you need. I have a plan. The plan to give you a hope and a future. We spent, the CGs this past week, spent a lot of time in 
Matthew 6, 19 to 34. And those verses in Matthew 6, 19 to 34, we read where God says he is going to provide for his people as they seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. And all of that is grounded. We read the Lord's Prayer as well. Preceding the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is this astounding promise by Jesus when he says, your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. So if God is measuring the city of Jerusalem, what he knows his people need is the assurance that even though at this point their life looks like a total waste, it is filled with stone and rubble and disaster. The plan that God has for his people, knowing what we need is hope and the promise and prospect that he will rebuild, renew, and restore that which was lost. And so on the positive side, the measuring of the city is this communication to Zechariah and his people that God sees what we can't see. He sees a future that we are anxious about, but he knows is planned for us and has in his complete control that he can rebuild a city, he can rebuild a life. More importantly, he has the ability to do so because it's one thing for God to promise I can promise you anything, but I may not have the means to fulfill that promise. My, my mouth may be writing checks that my body is not prepared to carry out. But when God makes a promise, his promise carries with it the guarantee that he has the means, the willingness, and the ability to fulfill it. And that is uh, at the heart of this promise to Zechariah. This is a call to hope, a call to faith, a call to love, and that's, the, I guess, the first angle. It's a positive angle. It's a good angle to see it. But there's another angle from which you can view this as well, which sort of is connected to that first angle and maybe looks at it from, a, a, let's say, a, a negative standpoint. That's maybe too strong a word, but the idea that given what it is said to the surveyor, that Jerusalem is going to be a village inhabited without walls, that the, the very act of measuring the width and the length of the city is not necessary as much, and, and it's inappropriate because the city is going to be so large that Zechariah sees um, the fact that walls around the city would only serve to limit the growth and inhibit the prosperity and blessing that God intends for his people. More importantly, the reason there is no need to measure for a physical wall comes from the mouth of the Lord himself in verse 5. I will be to her a wall of fire all around and the glory in her midst. Remember again, when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and they destroyed the city, there were many there who likely believed the city would never again be rebuilt. We, we can relate, you probably more than I, I was in Canada at the time, but when the towers fell, there was, a, there was an emptiness of soul and heart that was felt in this area. Would those buildings ever be rebuilt? Would those towers ever be restored? And all of the lives destroyed as a result of the destruction of those towers. And, and to see things rise from destruction and devastation, to see lives rebuilt, more important than a building, but to see lives rebuilt is really at the heart of what God is promising to Zechariah, that he would be a wall of fire all around and the glory in her midst. You destroy a capital city, the intention is to dishearten the people so that the very heartbeat, the very center, the very 
brain, if you will, of their nation is gone. But here God says, I will return. I will rebuild on this city. And he will comfort his people. He will comfort Zion by increasing their population and their prosperity. That's the, the imagery created by num numerous people and numerous livestock. God has big plans uh, for Jerusalem, plans to give it and the people who are in it uh, a future and a hope. Something else to consider, though, is this, that the Jerusalem that Zechariah sees was never rebuilt. The, like, the, the vision he has, that city is never made, at least not in the, the physical sense, and certainly not in Zechariah's lifetime. So we have a couple of options. How do we understand what this Jerusalem is that Zechariah is talking about, and what is this Jerusalem that he sees? One option is to look at this as having a, a future fulfillment, that the Jerusalem he sees will be built at some point in the future, as some would believe after the, the Lord Jesus returns. That's one view. Second view, which is the, the view that I uh, will take on this, not I alone, but others who would see this through the lens of uh, reform uh, theology, would see what Zechariah sees here as being fulfilled through the mission of the church. That as uh, Zion symbolizes the people of God, so Jerusalem symbolizes the church. You think about the church. The church can't be measured in terms of its geographic size. The church has no capital city. The church has no geographic location. It is indeed a city without walls without width, without length. Its, its dimensions are universal. We read about it in the Apostles' Creed. There isn't one geographic center, one geographic place in which the church is located. And the church is built as this Jerusalem on level open ground. Who builds a city on a level plain? Because it's indefensible. The reason why Jerusalem was on a mount is because you had to go uphill to attack it. You always want to build and have the high ground. But the church is built to have level ground at its base so that it becomes accessible to as many who want to enter it as God has will. What Zechariah is looking at then is what the writer of Hebrews describes in that marvelous chapter 11. The same thing that Abraham was looking for. A city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He sees a city, does Zechariah, that is constantly expanding its size and increasing its population. A city built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. A city that is characterized by peace, by prosperity, and by unlimited growth. A city that we will see as we move through the vision that will include not simply those that are born into the nation of Israel, but then those who are born again into that same nation by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ. Walls, then, would simply restrict the number of people that God intends to live in that city, in the church. Walls would hinder the plans that God has for it. Walls would limit the missionary impact of this city. The exponential growth of the city... Uh, implies that the wall of fire surrounding the city 
expands in proportion to the population in it. You get a vision of motion here, that more city, or more people rather, will result in the city having to expand its boundaries. The expansion of the city will require the expansion of the wall of fire surrounding it. There were a few years ago, my brother and his, my brother lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and if Jacksonville, Florida is a unique city. It, the population is very small, but the geographic size of Jacksonville is immense in comparison to the population. It's the same kind of idea here, that as the city increases in population, the wall around it begins to expand to protect it. Think of what Jesus says at, in Acts 1. Before he ascends into heaven, and the, the apostles ask him if he's going to restore the kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't need to know about times and the hour. What you need to worry about is go to Jerusalem, stay there for ten days, you'll receive the Spirit, and then you'll be my witnesses. Notice the expansion that Jesus talks about. Jerusalem, Samar uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So that it starts in Jerusalem. It expands to Judea, goes to the north to Samaria, and then expands to the ends of the earth. So the wall of fire that protects that city expands along with it. And that wall that Zechariah describes here is simply the manifestation, the visible manifestation of God's glory and his presence. We've seen this imagery before. We certainly have seen it in, in the, the book of Exodus, for example, when God follows Israel in the wilderness as a pillar of fire, which protects them from their enemies, as well as giving them the comfort of light and heat. The, the writer of Hebrews, in terms of the protective nature of God's character, his glory, the writer of Hebrews describes God as a consuming fire so that this wall protects Israel from, uh, or his people rather, from attacks from without. Not even the, and then when Jesus talks about the power of the church in Matthew 16, a church that is built upon him, a church, he says, such that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we have this imagery that here God has placed us, his church, here in Englewood Cliffs, Tarrytown, New York, Manhattan, wherever there are people gathered in Jesus' name, proclaiming the gospel, living out the gospel, being salt and light, while the surrounding culture increases in its hostility toward the truth and toward the nature of the church and toward the mission of the church, here God promised 2,500 years ago that regardless of the attitude and actions of the surrounding culture, which will always be hostile to the truth. God ensures that his people will always expand. There will always be growth. And as they grow, there is protection. There, it, it seems, right, it always seems worse than it is. But when you think of our situation compared to Zechariah's, who's in the worst position? Zechariah, there's no city, there's no wall. The very, how many Jews are left from the original population that inhabited that land? Talk about something that would appear hopeless. 
Man, 2,500, 3,000 years later, the church is present all over the world. And in some parts of the world, particularly in the, the southern hemisphere, the church is growing stronger in its witness and its intensity. That the, the focus, if you will, of, of activity is shifting from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere and is actually resulting in Christians from the southern hemisphere being sent north to evangelize and to witness. And so we have this sense in which, oh, things are terrible. It's a relative thing, given the fact that God is a surrounding wall of fire. But not just around the city, around the individuals that, who serve him in that city. So you go to your place of work and you have to mind which pronoun you use. There's a wall of fire protecting you. Or whether you have to get a vaccine or not or whether you have to wear a mask or not, or whether you have to watch the words that you say. There is a wall of fire. The courage that we have, the faith that we have, comes from the knowledge that God is protecting us. He is also at the center of our, our worship, that he is this wall of fire. The wall of fire does more than uh, ensure the unstoppable growth and the security of the city. It also ensures the sanctity, the safety, and the salvation of the people who live in it. And that imagery, I think that imagery also is borrowed from Genesis 3.24. Genesis 3.24, after Adam and Eve have sinned, they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God casts them out of the garden, and the verse says, he placed the cherubim, which is an angel, a fiery one, and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now that flaming sword acts like a flaming wall. It protects access to the tree of life in the same way that the wall of fire protects access to the city, the church, the people of God. Um, that wall symbolizes the holiness of God, which will consume anyone who dares to approach him without his first inviting them to come near. Think of Moses at the burning bush, right? Moses wants to see why this bush burns but is not consumed. But Moses does not approach the bush until God speaks to him from the bush and says, Moses, take off your sandals because where you're standing is holy ground. So the wall of fire, the flaming sword, the burning bush convey that image of God's holiness. You don't approach his holiness unless he invites you. But we read in verse 11 of the prophecy, the vision here, that somehow many nations will become part of the city. How does that happen? How are they able to penetrate that wall of fire? How does one enter the, this new Jerusalem? How does one enter the church through that wall of fire and not be consumed? And that's the problem, because we have to go through that wall of fire. No one can pass through that wall and live. No one can see the glory of God and live. The only way to pass through that wall safely is by trusting in one who has already passed through that wall, died as a result, and come back to life. The only way that we can look upon the glory of God and live 
is by trusting in one who is the glory of God in human flesh. Remember the flaming sword there in Genesis 3 guarded the way to the tree of life? The only way to gain access to that tree is to undergo the judgment of that sword. The only way that we can gain access to that tree is by trusting in one who indeed did suffer the judgment of that flaming sword. The only way to become part of the church then is, if you will, to die to our sins by trusting in the one who died for our sins. The only way to pass through that wall of fire is to, is to trust one who has passed through that wall and who has made a way through it that we may enter into it. I always think, too, when I read this text, how when John the Baptist is describing Jesus' ministry, he tells, he speaks of Jesus, says, Jesus, the one who comes after me, will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire. Why? We think of terms of fire consuming, fire purging, fire renewing, fire cleansing. But Jesus himself underwent that same fire. He was anointed with the Spirit, and he went through the fire of judgment on the cross. And then he came back to show us his way through it. So what Zechariah sees here is a prophecy, I believe, of the ever-expanding, ever-enlarging, ever-growing, ever-maturing, ever-developing, ever-expanding mission of the church through the proclamation of the gospel all the while protected by God by this wall of fire all around. That Jesus did in fact come to baptize us with the Holy Spirit in fire. That it's the Spirit of God who gives us the courage to walk into that fire, knowing that Christ has entered into it as well, that we can experience the judgment of God upon our sin by trusting in the one who experienced that judgment for us as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then we gaze upon the glory of God. What does it mean, you think, when, when God says, I will be the glory in their midst? Well, again, what was the central focus of the city? It was the temple, the physical representation. But here God is saying, your trust is not going to be in a building. You don't have to enter a building in order to experience the power of my glory. Glory in the sense that I love the word in the Hebrew, kavod. Just the way you say it, the word itself implies a weight, a heaviness. If you remember, the, uh, it's way back now, but the, the, the first Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, right? When they, when they put the ark on the, on the ship and there's a, there's a rat that walks by the crate and the, the, the screen sort of goes in and out. It sort of vibrates. Because there's a, the, the implication that there's a heaviness to that presence. There's a weight to it. And God says that weight, that substance that you long for, that righteousness that you hunger for, you're not going to find it in a building. You're not going to find it in any physical structure. You're going to find it in me. You're going to find it by me dwelling in you through the presence of my Holy Spirit. So that you have an image here of God's glory surrounding the city and filling the city. Surrounding his people and filling his people. There's a double witness. There's a double protection there. There's a double security. 
so that God's glory is no longer attached, assigned, or associated with the building. So we don't need a geographic location to experience the presence of God. We simply need to trust in Christ, who is the glory of God made manifest. It means that the Lord is now the center of our worship, the center of our spiritual life. It means that the church and everyone in it is surrounded and filled with the glory of God. Through the power of his Holy Spirit, through the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be a wall of fire around her. And I will be the glory in her midst. Just to dwell on that, and the the, the implication of the strength that we gain from that, the courage that we gain from that, the heart that we gain from that awareness, which is more than just a metaphor, but a reality. You read through the the New Testament. You read through the testimony even of the martyrs in the early church, the way that they would endure all things for the sake of the gospel. There's a power that God imparts. I understand we live in perilous times. I understand that we live in times when you watch the news, you go on the Internet, you maybe even participate in social media, and you just sort of want to say, this is just... I don't, there, there isn't a word. I mean, well, I mean, there are words. Some you can't say in public. Um, certainly not from a pulpit. But you think, this doesn't... How... It's like Liz Lemon, blurg. And yet we are told here, because God is a wall of fire around us and glory in our midst, we can smile at our foes. We can rejoice in the midst of that. Because we have not only received the truth, but received the commission to share the truth. Even to those who don't want to hear it but must. Some of us, many of us may, you know, you know John Newton as uh, the composer of uh, the the, the hymn Amazing Grace. Newton wrote many other hymns in in addition to Amazing Grace. One of of my favorites of his uh, is the hymn called Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Uh, And it's, I don't know if it was inspired by Zechariah or not, but the first stanza of that hymn uh, captures the spirit of this third vision. Newton writes, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. Smile. Maranatha, the Lord of hosts is a wall of fire all around you. The Lord of hosts is the glory in your midst. And who wouldn't find that something to smile about? You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the promise of your protection, the guarantee of it through the finished work of Christ, through the presence of your Spirit, in us, your presence surrounding us and guiding us wherever we go. Help us, Lord God, at times um, 
when we feel most threatened to remember that you are a wall of fire all around us, you are the glory in our midst, and we may smile. We may smile at our foes because the Lord of glory has smiled on us. Let us reflect that smile back into our world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.